I came to the Navajo Nation looking for answers after an indigenous elder vanished in the dead of night. But I soon found something else, a tangled web of violence and retaliation. It's survival out there. That's what it is. It's about survival. Those guys know something. I just think they're afraid to say it. People know you can get away with murder out there. I'm Connie Walker. Listen to Stolen, Trouble in Sweetwater on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. On the last episode of Solvable, the pathologist in Jackson County determined that baby Jane Doe was 18 months old and had died likely about a day or two before she was found floating in the Escatawba River. 200 strangers in southern Mississippi memorialized her short life when she was laid to rest in a plot purchased, in part, by an area law enforcement officer and his family. Then, after 2008, a new Jackson County Sheriff's Office investigator named Hope Manning took over the case and decided to exhume baby Jane's body. While crews were digging at the cemetery, Hope made a startling discovery. There was a second unidentified baby interred beside baby Jane. In the ground, buried next to our baby Jane from 1982, was the body of another unknown deceased little girl who we'll call Baby Jane too. Her grave marker stated that she entered and left this world in 1988. Hope Manning was caught completely by surprise. She knew a lot about the 1982 Baby Jane case, but no one had ever mentioned that a second Baby Jane was buried in the same cemetery six years later. Hope had rifled through boxes and boxes of investigative reports and evidence for Baby Jane from 1982, and even found an artist's rendering of what she would have looked like in life. But information about the circumstances surrounding Baby Jane 2's death was, for lack of a better word, non-existent. In my research as a genetic genealogist, I'm drawn to cases like Baby Jane 2's, a case where there is no information, no one looking for the deceased, and they're just seemingly forgotten. In my experience, the best way to learn more about her history and how she ended up buried next to our baby Jane is to exhume her remains and use genetic genealogy on her DNA. If a viable DNA sample can be retrieved, there's a chance that more of her story can be known. Until then, here's what little information we do know from the records that are available. Baby Jane, too, was between three and five weeks old when a fisherman along the Pascagoula River found her on Wednesday, June 29, 1988. Her body was entangled in a trot line in the water near the city of Wade, Mississippi. For those of you who don't know what a trot line is, it's essentially a heavy fishing line with baited hooks and shorter fishing lines spread out at different points along it. It's usually stretched across a wide area of a river in an attempt to lure multiple fish in at a time. So think of it as a clothesline in the water with hooks across it instead of clothespins. 
Baby Jane 2's autopsy revealed that she weighed about six pounds and had brown hair and blue-gray eyes. The pathologist determined that she was born most likely between May 21st and June 4th of 1988 and had been dead for three to four days before being found in the river. Her tiny skull had been crushed, but it was too difficult for the pathologist to know for sure if that was the cause of her death or just a post-mortem injury. One undeniable conclusion from her autopsy was the fact that she was a victim of a homicide. Her lungs contained sand particles, which meant she was alive when she entered the water and was able to take tiny breaths before expiring. After Baby Jane 2 was found in 1988, two local funeral homes donated a graveside service and buried her beside the first Baby Jane from 1982. Back then, Chief Deputy John Ledbetter's grandfather, who was the sheriff of Jackson County at the time, told the Hattiesburg American, quote, We still put flowers on the grave. I go by there every once in a while to make sure it's okay. End quote. Baby Jane 2 is one of 2,666 unidentified minors in NamUs. 465 of those are estimated to be five years old or younger. We interviewed a representative from NamUs who told us that the database only contains approximately one-fourth of all unidentified people in the United States. Interestingly, in most states, it's not even required that NamUs profiles be created for the unidentified. So the true figure of unidentified children may be closer to 12,000. Just think about that for a minute. That's 12,000 lives cut short far too soon. Most, if not all, are just sitting in paupers' graves or waiting under a doe headstone for their identities to be restored. We have provided a link to Baby Jane 2's NamUs entry on our website, www.solvablepodcast.com. We encourage you to visit namus.gov and review the unidentified, unclaimed, and missing individuals from your area. It is so important that we work together to give these individuals their identities back. During our Baby Jane's grave exhumation, Hope Manning noticed that the grave itself was flooded. The same was noted for Baby Jane 2's burial plot. I know we, we exhumed her when we talked about the cemetery. The, um, she was underwater. So, In the grave, you mean? No, no vault. It, That's all there was In an old casket, but where both both the plots are, she was submerged in water. Is the water table that high yes. there? Yes. Mm-hmm. So when we exhumed her, we brought her up to the the mm-hmm. opening, yeah. and um, the pathologist McGarrett, Paul yeah. McGarrett, yeah, he collected the sample. Yes. Well, they were very skeptical because of the age and the water. Her little her little body was like leather. That's not surprising, considering the particular area of Jackson County has endured decades of hurricanes, most notably Superstorm Hurricane Katrina in 2005. When we visited the cemetery last summer, the first thing we noticed was that it was in serious disrepair. Everywhere we looked, we saw weeds growing a foot high and headstones sinking into the marshy ground. It took us hours to locate the correct headstones. When we finally located the grave sites for Baby Jane and Baby Jane 2, the rectangular memorials were flush with the ground 
and the metal plating on each had the distinctive blue-green patina of weathered copper. Both markers were nearly identical and sat only a few inches apart. Baby Jane from 1982's marker reads, known only to God, and Baby Jane 2's marker reads, in God's care. On the bottom left side of both copper plates is the image of a shepherdess who resembles Bo Peep, standing accompanied by three little lambs with her shepherd's hook in hand. A pounded copper vase sat atop each marker, and someone had left a small bouquet of white, yellow, pink, and red silk flowers in them. The only other difference between the two memorials, beside the dates inscribed on them, is that our Baby Jane's marker has a color copy of an artist's reconstruction of her face on it. After the exhumation, and while awaiting forensic findings, Hope Manning's investigative efforts into identifying Baby Jane from 1982 focused on getting the case renewed media attention. She created a Facebook page for Baby Jane and tried to tap into social media. During this process, she felt compelled to give Baby Jane a more formal name. Well, I named her Delta Dawn because she deserves a name. My sister had passed away. So it was just a thing between me and her and my mom. We would always, you know, my mom would get in her mood and she would always sing Delta Dawn and my little sister would just, so she needed something. Because it was, what, 7 o'clock? Around 7 o'clock is when we, in the morning. It was right at dawn. So we just, it just all fell together. Hope also took a big step and officially loaded a profile for Baby Jane Delta Dawn into the NamUs database. And for the first time in decades, new leads emerged from out of state and from as far away as Germany. I came to the Navajo Nation looking for answers after an indigenous elder vanished in the dead of night. But I soon found something else a tangled web of violence and retaliation. It's survival out there, that's what it is. It's about survival. Those guys know something. I just think they're afraid to say it. People know you can get away with murder out there. I'm Connie Walker. Listen to Stolen, Trouble in Sweetwater on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. When Jackson County investigator Hope Manning finally got Baby Jane, who she also calls Delta Dawn, uploaded into the NamUs system, she worked tirelessly to review possible matches that came up. I got with, I think it was with NamUs. Um, I had worked with a lady um, with NamUs and missing an exploitation. I was in very close connection with two different people. And they were updating. They, we finally got her put on the site. Now, at the time, all we had was a composite. You know, uh, that's all we could put out there. And it's just they kept pushing it out there on, you know, on the website. And then I would push it. And I can't tell you how many, I, I wouldn't even say hours. I would say years, sit behind a computer screen looking for her, you know, and once we finally got it out there is when the calls started coming in and I knew if I did get it out there, I wouldn't have any, I wouldn't have any leads whatsoever. Leads started to come in from all over the United States and even overseas. It was the one in Germany 
it was the second one I got. It was after the California one. And it just, the time frame didn't line up with the age of the child. And, you know, there would have been no way that child could have been here from the time they said that child, you know, come up this, there would have been no way as far as time frame goes. Um, and then in California, they had sent pictures and you gotta remember, when I exhumed her body, I held her body. And when we unwrapped her, because of the, you know, the way the water somehow mummified this baby, um, it was like holding a baby doll. So I knew after the fact it couldn't have been that shot. Even, you know, people, you know, would say, well, because it's been decades and this and this, I'm like, you weren't there. You didn't hold that child. It was like that baby was preserved. I have never in my life seen anything like this. As part of her effort to push baby Jane's case forward, Hope also became determined to track down the truck driver, Ted, who in 1982 had reported seeing an adult's body in the Pascagoula River, the same day that baby Jane was found in the neighboring Escatawpa River. Hope actually did a phone interview with Ted years after the fact to try and pin down his story more. Unfortunately, an official recording of that call no longer exists at the Jackson County Sheriff's Office. But we found a recording in a YouTube video on this case. And I can hear a child or baby crying top of his lungs and it's coming down in the water there or in a boat or something. I, I didn't know. That brief snippet of Ted's voice explaining to Hope what he remembered witnessing back in 1982 struck her as extremely odd. I did a um, phone interview with him. His story completely changed from seeing a body face down, blue and black checkered, the description, to I heard a baby crying. Like Hope just said, long gone was Ted's story that he saw an adult's body in the Pascagoula River on December 5th, 1982. Instead, he told Hope that he heard a child crying while he had his window down, driving on I-10, which again, to Hope, seemed extremely strange and quite honestly, impossible. Now, he's traveling 45 miles an hour eastbound on the interstate with, at the time, he said was he said his refrigeration system went down but then on the interview, he said that he had an empty trailer. I mean, so everything changed. It went from seeing a body face down to hearing, hearing a child scream. Our investigative team tried multiple times to contact Ted and interview him for this show. But each time, he's refused to speak with us. We've talked with his wife several times on the phone but she always states that he isn't available or he doesn't want to be involved. In police reports for this case that we've been given exclusive access to, we've seen Ted's full name pop up, but for the sake of respecting his wishes and understanding that he's never formally been named as a suspect in this case, we're choosing only to refer to him by his first name. When Hope Manning's quest for answers, including trying to squeeze more information out of Ted, led nowhere, Her role in the case began to change as year after year dragged on. But despite getting further and further from the case, 
Hope still continued to manage the Facebook page for baby Jane and stayed involved in the investigation as much as she could. Basically, she was approaching retirement, but unwilling to end her watch before baby Jane got her identity back. I told the sheriff I can retire once we give her a name. In August 2020, when the Solvable team was granted access to case files, reports, and documents, everyone within the Jackson County Sheriff's Office was prepared to do things a little differently. By 2020, all of the investigators involved and those who had knowledge about the case wanted to provide us with as much information as possible in hopes of finally identifying baby Jane. I'll be the first to tell you, sharing information in an open case is not something most investigators and law enforcement organizations feel comfortable doing, especially when we know baby Jane's case has all of the telltale signs of likely being a homicide. Detectives always work with a prosecution in mind, and they want to make sure they don't release too much information that may lead to a false confession or harm the integrity of the investigation. But with us, in this case in particular, Sheriff Ezell and Chief Ledbetter were willing to shift their way of thinking. They realized that making an arrest or convicting someone of a crime in this case may not happen. So they are now prioritizing identifying Baby Jane, also known as Delta Dawn, and finding her family above all else. The first major break in the case happened in 2019. In November of that year, Jackson County Evidence Technician Jeremy Miller, along with several others in the department, began looking into using genetic genealogy to identify baby Jane. Othram, a Houston-based lab, was willing to help. But as it is with many departments across the country, securing funding for testing was a concern. Before Jeremy could spend much time worrying about how to get the funds, he received an unexpected phone call from New York. I came to the Navajo Nation looking for answers after an indigenous elder vanished in the dead of night. But I soon found something else, a tangled web of violence and retaliation. It's survival out there. That's what it is. It's about survival. Those guys know something. I just think they're afraid to say it. People know you can get away with murder out there. I'm Connie Walker. Listen to Stolen, Trouble in Sweetwater on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like everything just fell into place, you know what I mean? It's like uh, the, sh- the light shone down from the clouds because everything started falling into place. And because uh, about the same time I got the price list, I was contacted by a lady that lives in Brooklyn, New York, and she wanted to donate to pay for it because she remembered growing up. And uh, I drove the samples myself to Houston and delivered them in person. And, um, was that a 10 hour drive? It was about nine, nine hours. Uh, but worth it. You know, yeah. it's, uh, nothing, nine hours is nothing compared to 40 years. The donor from New York who offered to pay Othram's lab fees to do the genetic genealogy testing on baby Jane's remains for the Jackson County Sheriff's Office was a woman named Catherine Serbusik. We called Catherine at her home in Brooklyn to learn more about what inspired her to offer to sponsor the entire cost of the genetic genealogy testing. I think that I was around eight 
And that was when the first composite sketch of her, what she possibly looked like, uh, had been released. And so it was on the news. Um, to my memory, I thought it was on Unsolved Mysteries, but I don't, I've never, I don't think it was on Unsolved Mysteries. Now that I'm adult, you might try to look up the episode. But it stuck with me because at the time, uh, I thought, they thought she was two years old. And I thought, well, she would have been my age. She'd be my age. I could have been friends with her. I grew up in Arkansas. Um, and that's probably why it was on local news. Um, so it wasn't that far-fetched in my mind to think, well, somebody could have moved from Mississippi to here. I could have known her. And it kind of brought into my eight-year-old mind the thought of mortality, my own mortality, um, and that it was possible for kids my age to die. And so I, I never, never forgot her because of that. Um, my father had died when I was a baby. And so I, you know, I understood death, but then having to think of, you know, that was other people. And this was, you know, that dawning realization of, oh, something terrible could happen to me. And when I decided that I was going to do this was I was turning 40 and I had saved up because, you know, everybody does big blowouts for their 40s, 40th birthday these days. And so I had saved and I never decided what I was going to do. I thought I'll take a big trip. I'll, you know, something big. And then, you know, my sister had warned me, well, you're going to have all this existential dread because our father died when he was 40. And I thought, well, I know that. And experiencing is different from knowing. So, you know, then my birthday happened and I love birthdays, but I just didn't want to do anything. I didn't know what, you know, I kept, what do I want to do with this? Where where do I want to go? I kept not making a decision. And then I joked with my sister that I was going to start a podcast called Unsolved Unsolved Mysteries, working through the cases that are unsolved mysteries. And because I joked about it, and I was really thinking about it, and you know, I, I do not have the time, um, but I I thought, well, what would I do first? And, it, and immediately I knew that this is what I would do. And um, so... I, you know, I had thought, had that thought, and then months later, I guess, I was sitting at home. My daughter was in school. My son was napping. I didn't have work that day, and I thought, well, who would I contact if I were just going to ask about doing this? And so, you know, I, I Googled, and then I thought, well, I could just call and ask. No, you know, what's the worst that could happen if somebody say no? Okay, I can live with that. It's me asking to give you money, so... At first, Catherine's call and offer to pay for the critical testing was bounced around a bit, from one person to the next. Then finally, her phone call landed with the right person, evidence technician Jeremy Miller. It didn't take long for Jeremy to accept Catherine's offer, and in November 2019, he made the trip from Jackson County to Houston to hand-deliver the DNA samples to Othram. Hopes were high, but there was one big problem. According to Othram CEO, David Middleman, the sample from baby Jane was in very poor condition. Due to so many years passing since she was first buried and the fact that her grave had been flooded, 
the evidence sample that the lab had to work with was contaminated with bacteria. To everyone's dismay, the condition of the remains meant that the sample would take much longer than anticipated to develop a usable profile. So while they waited for results, investigators had no choice but to go back over the many theories that had emerged over the years as to who baby Jane was, what had happened to her, and where her mother could be. By that point, the sheriff's office was convinced that the report of the adult body seen floating in the Pascagoula River the same day baby Jane was found in the Escatawpa River was most likely the little girl's mother. All of the evidence and witness testimony in the case pointed to that being the most likely scenario. By 2019, what investigators realized was that in all of their years looking into baby Jane's case, they'd never taken a big enough step back and looked at all the other crimes happening in Jackson County during the 1980s. When they did widen their scope, they discovered an alarming number of horrific unsolved homicide cases that overlapped with the same time frame that baby Jane and the body of her supposed mother were reported. Many of those cases were homicides of young women and bore striking resemblances to each other. Next time on Solvable, we're taking a brief break from discussing baby Jane's case to dive into some of those other unsolved murders, one of whose prime suspect may be linked to baby Jane. Red flags were everywhere. It's like he implanted himself into these murders. In his journals, he admitted that he's the one that killed Nelka and shot the mother with a 22 under her tent. That's on the next episode of Solvable. I came to the Navajo Nation looking for answers after an indigenous elder vanished in the dead of night. But I soon found something else. A tangled web of violence and retaliation. It's survival out there. That's what it is. It's about survival. Those guys know something. I just think they're afraid to say it. People know you can get away with murder out there. I'm Connie Walker. Listen to Stolen, Trouble in Sweetwater on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.